Let me tell you what this political movement is about. Jobs and growth for all Australians. Don jobs and growth. Have great jobs. Economic growth. Strong growth. More jobs. When they go low, we go high. So I'm seeing in my mind something very similar with this bill to a colonoscopy. Let me just stop you so you don't waste a line of questioning. I'm just giving you... I love the mansplaining. I would build a great wall, and nobody builds walls better than me, believe me. Please clap. Please clap. This is Represent. 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 On Sid Nation. Welcome to Represents Budget Coverage live from Sin Nation. Treasurer Scott Morrison has just delivered his second budget speech to Parliament. The 2017-18 budget is now officially released and we are very excited to put it under the microscope. I am Tash. And I am Julia. And we are joined in the studio for this very special budget episode with young Liberal member Harish Makam. Uh, young Labor member Timothy Weber and Monash University economic student Mitch Harvey. Hello, everybody. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Very excited. Yeah. So, um, from we, what? Yeah. So we're going to kick off with <laughs> a very general question of what you've seen in the budget. From what you've seen in the budget so far, what are your thoughts or what you've heard from the speech? We'll start with Tim. Sure. Tim? Uh, it's a bizarrely Labor budget. This is a. But this is a. It's. It's. I went last year. I was on the Sin program. Uh, we were talking about what it would a you know average budget it is. I've got to say this is a bizarrely Labor budget. It's like the Liberals have done a full 180 in the last few months. They've realised economic conservatism just isn't the way to go. They've jumped onto Keynesian economics and they <laughs> thought, you know what we need? We need a return to the to the Keating government, to the Rudd and Gillard governments. Let's adopt all the good old-fashioned Labor spending models. And let's go in big <laughs> on progressive government spending. It is, it's a bizarre thing to watch deeply conservative people like Scott Morrison championing ideas that they've been trash-talking for two decades. <laughs> Harish, what's your response to that? Well, look, I've, I've heard it, uh, the commentary on this regarding the labour light budget. I don't think that's true. I think there have been corporate tax cuts underneath this budget that we can speak about that are quite liberal. Um, infrastructure spending, which is quite liberal. We'll talk about good debt, at, um, I'm, I'm sure, at uh, the end of this broadcast. Um, look, spending is coming down. We're at $29 billion in deficit this year. That's what the budget is telling us. Uh, um, a $7 billion surplus 2021. So now we have a credible path to surplus. Um, hopefully that will eventuate. But I don't think you could say it's labour light or it's a left-wing budget when there's corporate tax cuts underneath this budget, when there is infrastructure spending, when there's a credible path to surplus that is totally and utterly liberal. Yes, there is infra- uh, there is spending on education and health. Well, that's a good thing. I hope Labor supports that in the Senate. The problem is, in the 2014 budget, we had all these savings reforms, billions of dollars of saving reforms, and what did Labor do? They blocked them in the Senate. The Greens blocked them in the Senate. And we weren't able to have a purely conservative budget in what um, Tony Abbott would like or Joe Hockey would like. So we've had to compromise, and I think it's a responsible budget, a fair budget, it's a liberal budget, and it's a good budget. Mitch, your thoughts? Well, just to try and walk the middle of it, it's, <laughs> a, it's, I think it's the budget of an optimistic government. 
I think they're starting mm. to see some global trends in growth going really well. The EU has started to recover from its GFC turndown. America's finally starting to get a bit of a pickup in, especially the stock market and private investment. And so, and the figures in the Australian um, domestic scene are starting to look pretty good too. So the job market's starting to look very positive. Business growth and confidence is starting to look very positive. So based on the numbers and the econometric data that the state government's, the, sorry, the federal government's relying on, I think they're starting to think that things are going to get good. The deficit's going to come down because we're going to make more tax revenues. And they are still slowly decreasing their debt. Not as much of a decrease as I expected or I thought would have been appropriate. But nonetheless, um, I, I do have to somewhat agree with our Labor, uh, sorry, agree with our Labor representative here that it is more of a spend, spend more in tax um, gov- um, budget. There is infrastructure spending, which I didn't expect to see coming. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was it apart from it being a very Labor budget, um, is there anything that you, that was surprising? Yeah, I, I to an extent, um, it was just weird to see certain funding models picked up for certain projects. Um, it's always kind of funny to watch the Liberals uh, announce uh, that you know the, the government that was originally elected um, on the, the promise to get rid of the debt and deficit Labor government has once again managed to triple um, the deficit. I think we're now at $36.5 billion when they started at 10.6. Um, so, so that, that's it's kind of weird watching them championing these things when the government was first elected in 2013, we're at 2017 now. It's weird watching them pull out these figures as if it's something to be proud of. Um, we were promised a correction to Victorian infrastructure spending. We haven't seen that. Um, uh, from what I understand, I think Victoria's only going to get 77 cents out of every $10 uh, handed over to the government for the GST. So, yeah, some things were sort of championed in as if they were something to be proud of when the figures just don't back it up. But that's a first impression from me. Mitch, what do you think? Oh, well, they have... I mean, there is a decline in spending growth, and I think that's been the most difficult thing for both governments to deal with, is the one of the realities of the Howard government is that Howard experienced incredible economic growth, and so they could uh, acquire great, great uh, tax revenues at very low tax rates, and thus Howard was able to increase government spending without hurting the surplus. And, of course, that growth declined, and we realised that a lot of this spending was actually was structurally not sustainable. And so both governments, both the previous Labor government and the Liberal government, have really struggled to get down spending in any way that was actually politically feasible. Um, I, th- yeah, I, have, I do have to agree with some points, but... Um, I think that, that's all I have to say. Adding one more point there. Sorry, I, I know it's my liberal friend's turn here. But can I say one thing that did surprise I'll me? I'll let you was, go. Oh, thank you. And I do appreciate it. Um, I'll consider your points for the Senate. Uh, no, it was interesting. I think the message from the last election certainly wasn't we want big business uh, and, and big banks in particular to have a tax cut. I don't think that was the message the electorate sent. And I certainly don't think it was, Mr Turnbull, I think, students need to be paying for those tax cuts and this budget's really championed those things um found that a bit peculiar myself Mm. harish what are your thoughts well spending has gone down it was 40 billion when the 2014 budget um which had a lot of savings measures in it 
um, was announced. It's now $30 billion. There is a credible path to surplus, $7 billion in 2021. And the main reason, uh, I do agree with some points in regards to we need to get the deficit down, we need to get the debt down, and drastically. Um, but we tried to do that in 2014, and we had billions of dollars of savings measures in the Senate, and they were blocked by the Greens and Labor, and we couldn't do much about that. And, um, well, so Tony Abbott tried, he couldn't get it through, and now um, Morrison and Turnbull um, are trying this particular approach with uh, increasing, tax, um, increasing taxes, and um, we'll see how this goes. But at the end of the day, we're trying to achieve what we promised at the 2013 election, but we have to go about it in a different way because Labor have, have opposed us. And we did take the corporate tax cuts to, to the last election, and we're de delivering on that. And I think we had a mandate when we won 76 seats in the House um, to get those corporate tax cuts through. So all in all, I, I think we, we are trying to reduce deficit, reduce debt. It is hard. It is very difficult to reform mm. with the Senate. But we're trying, about it, trying it in different ways, and hopefully we get the desired result. And I think we will. I mean, you, have to, you have, do have to keep in mind uh, with what you're saying there is that uh, you failed to get things through the Senate uh, in 2013 and 2014 because Tony Abbott... Uh, announced reforms that he wasn't elected uh, he wasn't elected on the basis to do that the the electorate never gave him the mandate to do the things he wanted to do that's partly why labor the greens and the crossbenchers blocked them um, well i think the overarching promise was to get the budget under control and yeah, that's that why people one, elected it because there were 300 many, million dollars many, in many many promises um, but it, we'll, we'll we'll move on i guess <laughs> All right, uh, don't forget to um, tweet to us or send us your Facebook messages along with observing, listening and watching. Um, you can always join the discussion. So send us any of your budget questions. You can give us a tweet at SinRepresent or find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. We'll be posting emoji polls throughout the night, which you should partake in. Um, Lots of fun. <laughs> you can so much fun. follow us on Facebook, uh, on Instagram um, at SinRepresent. But we are now um, going to take a trip down memory lane and hear from One Nation's Pauline Hansen and her humble Easter message. We'll be back with more for Represents Budget Night Special on Sin Nation. Take it away. One of the biggest complaints I have had since being elected is about halal certification. And it was my promise to you that I would do something about it. But there's another thing too with uh, regards to that, guess what, it's Easter, special time of the year for a lot of people and families and we see these products out there that are actually halal certified, Cadbury's chocolate for instance, halal certified. But if you want to get product that's not halal certified, I'd suggest Lint, that's not halal certified and another great one is Daryl Lee. Again, the Australian company, not halal certified. So if you want to actually um, support um, these companies, do it because these were purchased from Woolworths. I know IGA also has it. And support your local news agents. They carry Daryl Lee, the four and a half thousand news agents around the country. Support them. Great thing. But anyway, go and buy some non-halal Easter eggs and chocolate. And have a happy Easter, everyone, and a very safe one.
Thanks, Pauline. <laughs> <laughs> that was Pauline Hanson sending out some Easter love. You're listening to Represents Budget Night Special on Sin Nation. Housing affordability is increasingly seen as a huge intergenerational issue. Many schemes, packages and tax breaks have been floated around as ideas in the weeks leading up to the federal budget. Panorama reporter Jordan Fennell spoke to Carson Lewowski and tried to make sense of this issue. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird! It's a plane! It's superannuation. That's right, superannuation. It's the retirement fund put in place by the government to ensure that we have money to live off later on in life. But it's just something for old people to worry about, right? Young people, in their, particularly in their 20s, early 30s, definitely need to engage with retirement savings. That's Dr. Karsten Mwaski, a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne and principal investigator in the Brain, Mind and Markets Lab. And he says that superannuation is something young people need to get involved with from an early start. So in, in Australia, retirement income is uh, generated from three main sources. Uh, the, f- the first is the aged pension, which is the sum of money given to you by the government when you reach retirement age and is funded by the taxpayer. The second is superannuation, which is a compulsory amount of money contributed by your employer into a super fund for as long as you work. And lastly, is any other form of savings including investment property or investments in stocks and shares. So most retirees traditionally would have um, generated most of their income through their age pension. Now that has become slightly problematic from the government's perspective because as we know, the population in Australia is um, aging and In 1964, only 8% of the population were aged 65 years and over. But by 2014, that had become 15% of the population. And because so many more people are now over the age of retirement, there are less taxpayers to fund them all. This has led the government to push the age of retirement from 65 to 67 years old and has led to a lot of superannuation reforms as more and more people start to rely on that as well as the age pension. Used um, compulsory superannuation. What that means is that um, today, um, every the employer of uh, every worker, if you like, in in the in the Australian um, workforce who earns above a certain relatively low level of income, for each of those um, employees, the employer will have to make a contribution um, to a so-called superannuation fund. What that means is they will have to contribute or to pay um, at the moment nine and a half percent of a person wage or salary to a superannuation fund. Now the way that um, you can think about uh, a superannuation fund is um, it's like a a personal account. Super funds place that 9.5% of your money into the care of a fund manager who in turn invests it in different forms from property to shares. So that when you go to collect it when you retire, your money has grown. Well, hopefully. In 2012, the Observer ran a stock picking contest between three fund managers and a cat called Orlando. By the end of the year, Orlando had turned over more of a profit than the fund managers by randomly pawing at different sections of the Financial Times. 
it goes to show that it's worth shopping around for the best super fund, as many people just let their employers place their money into a default super fund account. That was Panorama reporter Jordan Fennell speaking to Carsten Nowowski about the issues surrounding housing affordability in the lead-up to tonight's budget. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation, and it is the Budget Night special. So, housing affordability, we've been talking about it a lot recently, especially amongst young people, and there's been lots of, you know, commotion about it, I suppose, but isn't really that much of a big issue or has this been spun out of proportion? Mitch, I'm going to ask you first. I think it is a very big issue, but I'm very worried about the um, policy prescriptions that are being talked about to solve it. I think what's been severely understated in the media coverage has been the role of very low interest rates on the part of the Reserve Bank. Mm-hmm. Um, they Basically, when you hold interest rates particularly low, the prices of houses or capital assets, so stocks, houses, um, machinery, um, producer goods is basically what they're called, they tend to go up in value quite a lot. And the thing is, the Reserve Bank's attempted to kickstart the Australian economy through low interest rates, and it's essentially been the driving force behind this um, housing affordability problem. Um, and also, I think the second issue, which has, I think, been under-addressed, has been the supply side. I think there's been insufficient criticism of state governments and local governments in the media. And the state governments have an exceptional array of levers they can pull. Um, unfortunately, they're very unpopular, and so they're not being um, considered. And so we're forced to consider only demand-side proposals. Yeah. Um, we'll go to yeah. Harish um, next. Yeah, I agree with. Oh, sorry about that. I agree with um, Mitch on this particular issue. Uh, housing affordability is a, a massive issue um, at the moment for Australians, especially younger Australians. I'll take a more of a, a governmental point of view on this. Uh, it is a fundamentally a state issue, and I think the federal government should push the states to talk about uh, supply and discuss the supply matters. Uh, regarding housing affordability. The real problem is there are a lot of young people who just want to live in a certain area in Melbourne and Sydney, and there's not many houses on offer. There aren't many apartments on offer. So we need to build more apartments, build more houses um, where people want to live. So inner city suburbs, greeny suburbs like Paran or Richmond in Sydney, um, you know, inner city suburbs there as well. Um, I mean, if you go up to the west, you can find affordable houses. You can find houses worth $300,000. But the problem is people don't want to live there. Um, so that's a massive issue. So you can increase supply, but the main political argument that people keep um, raising every time when you talk about supply is development. And people are too scared about development, whether you talk about sky rail or um, uh, increasing height limits on high-rise buildings or medium-story, medium-rise buildings. Um, development's a really tough political argument to cut through. The biggest thing that state governments can do, and I know it's unpopular, um, amongst uh, the Andrews government and the, um, the Liberal government in New South Wales is to reduce stamp duty, because that is massive at the moment, or take it away altogether, so scrap it. I mean, if you buy a $500,000 house, your stamp duty could be you know, anywhere between thirty dollars to $50,000 or something like that, and you have to pay that up front. And as a young person, you don't have that money, along with the deposit. So scrapping um, stamp duty in the short term will do something to fix the housing affordability crisis. In the long term, we need to look at supply both unpopular issues, both very difficult for government to tackle. Tim, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, uh, the stamp duty tax, uh, you know, it's obviously not a tax in, in the technical sense, but it really is in, in the uh, practical way in that it's one of the most important ways the state government makes money mm-hmm. and is able to spend money. Um, when you want to do much-needed things like build the Melbourne Metro Tunnel, 
um, uh, build big infrastructure projects that the uh, federal government, like the Turnbull government, shows no interest in helping to build, um, you kind of need to have a way of procuring money. Now, currently, a lot of people want to buy property in Victoria, which makes the concept of getting rid of the stamp duty or, or you know, lowering stamp duty anytime soon a kind of unrealistic um, uh, asking price. I do think housing affordability is one of the most critical issues right now. Um, I, I'd be I'd go so far as to say I don't think any major party has a real solution to this. I don't think any real party in Australia has a solution to this. And it's something that, uh, as a country, we, we really need to have a conversation about. At the end of the day, this isn't a problem in Darwin. This isn't a problem in Hobart or Adelaide or anywhere outside of Melbourne and Sydney. We have two uh, terrific cities great global cities that are expanding uh, rapidly uh, but no one's willing to have the conversation about inner suburban development everyone knows that we need to uh, increase the density in inner city suburbs but no one likes the idea of increasing the density in their area i can i completely completely agree with a lot of that um the thing is the biggest macroeconomic tool available to create make housing more affordable is increasing interest rates by the reserve bank however the reality is because australia is such a big country with such diverse economies that it can have such massive effects for instance you want low interest rates if the economy is doing badly such as it is in perth and adelaide but you want high interest rates in the economy is doing well such as in sydney and melbourne so because it's such a crude tool that affects the whole country raising interest rates to try and deal with a housing potentially bubble in Victoria and Sydney, sorry, Melbourne and Sydney, could have devastating consequences to other parts of the country. Um, in regards to the stamp duty discussion, I um, agree with a lot. The stamp duty is very important, but the thing is, and again, the governments won't talk about this because it's unpopular, but the problem with stamp duty, duty is that it's a transaction tax, and transaction taxes are very, very clumsy designs because they reduce... Basically, as the title suggests, it reduces the amount of transactions in the economy, and transactions are how you achieve a more efficient outcome. Whereas something like a land tax, which again would be very unpopular, would both encourage people to increase supply, discourage people from holding land, but also force people to make the most efficient transactions possible. And that's why a land tax, as proposed by um, Peter Martin from The Age, the economics writer, I think would be the most efficient way for a local state government to fight um, housing affordability issues. Um, yes, land tax. Yeah, land tax is a very important issue um, as well, along with stamp duty. I think all of these proposals are great, um, but as I said, it's, it's very unpopular for a government to take on these issues uh, because it'll either cut their revenue, as Tim said, and I agree with him on this, and um, or it will just be unpopular amongst the, amongst the public. So my advice to young people is really. Um, I think Melbourne and Sydney, if you want to buy your dream home there, renting is probably the best if you don't have the money, or buy in, um, in the suburbs where it is cheaper. Um, but um, you can't really uh, get your dream home if you, if you don't have the money, and um, it, it's, it's quite tough. So um, I think second best is probably what um, young people will be looking at. Um, if, if they don't have the hundreds of thousands of dollars that you need to buy a, to buy a house in, in the popular suburbs. So um, talking about um, having to deal with uh, second best, do you think that anything in the budget has um, sort of been raised that could tackle the issue of housing affordability and improve the market, like perhaps the ghost house tax or management investment trusts? What, uh, Harish, I'm talking to you, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so is there anything in the budget that you think um, would have a positive impact on sort of changing that idea? 
No, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think anything's related to really housing affordability in, in this budget. I think it was more based on infrastructure, education, health, um, also corporate tax cuts, which weren't talked about because they were talked about a lot in the last six months. But I think the issues like stamp duty land tax, I really believe these are state issues that the federal government can try to push the states to, to look at. But at the end of the day, the, the states need to look at it um, and the states need to... Um, push these reforms. The federal government can't really hold their hand in this regard. So uh, it is very isolated to Melbourne and Sydney. Um, so it is it is a big crisis in these areas. But when you go outside Melbourne and Sydney, it's maybe not the biggest crisis in the world. Um, but because everyone wants to buy um, land and property in a certain area, we have to cater for these people, um, which is pretty, pretty much the majority of the population. So... Um, it is it is an issue. Um, I don't think the budget stressed it. I think a lot of, there are a lot of band-aid solutions, but I don't think it directly affects it. It's a state issue. I think the state governments really need to uh, take responsibility for it. Well, with those with those um, specific programs in the federal budget, I think we have to realise that they're not targeted at young Australians or the ordinary Australian. Well, there is one that's targeted at the young Australians, but most of them are more focused on community housing and those the most vulnerable Australians. So, for instance, I think the Management Investment Fund, the Infrastructure Housing Fund that they're talking about, it's basically a, a model to try and make it more affordable and cheap for community houses to build more housing for the most vulnerable people in Australia. But... As you said, Harish, this isn't a broad solution to the problem. It's fixing up the extreme ends of a problem that has, has extreme impacts, particularly on the homeless and the poorest members of society. Yeah, the measures aren't directed at housing affordability. They're just There's lots of solutions that need to come in. The stamp duty, the land tax, the supply, there's lots of things that need to come in. There's nothing really directed at housing affordability at the moment because the governments are just too scared to go there, both Labor and Liberal which is a disappointment, but, um, you know, as I said, reform is hard. It's really hard with the 24-7 media cycle with the Senate. Um, majorities are hard to come by. Um, this is a very difficult issue, very unpopular amongst certain groups. You know, if you go down one route, you'll piss off one group and you'll um, help the others, but um, the governments just don't want to touch it. The Turnbull government's made no attempt to um, make housing more affordable, or perhaps I should say uh, bring the, the prices of... Um these houses down. What it has tried to do, um, which is an interesting kind of observation here, uh, it, it's it's done something kind of new, and they've been talking about doing something like this for a little while now. Um, but this is to, to use voluntary contributions to people's superannuation that people can um, use to to try to get um, a house deposit. Now, I'll be completely honest. I'm not an economic student, and I don't understand most of this. But from what I do gather, um, it's basically trying to give people uh, the means to buy their first home. From what I've read online, it seems to be a little bit of a half-backed idea, and people are a little bit sceptical, um, but it'll be interesting to see where the idea goes and whether or not it survives 12 months to the next budget. Well, it's one of those um, policies which sounds great politically, I think. Supporting first home buyers, giving money in home buy first home buyers' pockets, creating tax exemptions, you can do it as fancy as you want. But at the end of the day, demand-side policies always have the same effect. Dem if you encourage demand, you push up prices. And that's the same thing that happened in uh, Victoria when they had the first home buyers grant. It's the same thing when the federal government did the same thing. It's like every time 
that you try and give more money to people who are vulnerable or people who are seen to be disadvantaged. All it does is it puts more money in their pocket and it puts more money in the pocket next to the auction. And meanwhile, the investor who already has, um, who's already quite well off from their own um, negative, negative gear investments and own long-term engagement in the property market, has um, or can deal with the extra dollars. So all first home buyers do is make it harder for each other. And essentially, what the government does, it's the real world effect is a direct transfer from state ta from from the government tax money into the hands of the house seller, and that's really the, the effect I think it'll have. So I wanted to talk about the capital gains tax discount because I know we were talking about this earlier, Mitch. And um, so in the budget, it has been proposed that the capital gains tax discount would rise from 50% to 60%. So what does that actually mean? So yeah, I think that discount is only applicable for um, in bond investors who are investing for um, in that system where they support community housing more. Uh, that's really the main um, purpose of it. And I think it's to really encourage investors to engage in what is what is an investment which probably has very low returns and potentially is quite high risk if the community housing sector can't um, can't uh, recoup on its uh, promised investment. So I think there is some logic to it. I think it's, if you follow through the logic of the bond aggregator, where the government borrows from the bond market and then the government lends to the community housing sector, I can see why they've done it because essentially you make very little money looking after the most vulnerable in society and that's just uh, unfortunately a reality. Hmm. Hmm. All right. Yeah, in regards to negative gearing and um, uh, capital gains, I'm, I'm happy the Liberal government didn't touch it in this um, particular budget and won't into the future. Um, regarding uh, what well, we heard with Scott Morrison, he said, you know, negative gearing changes are, are not going to be touched in the budget, which is which is a good thing, I believe, because I think we need to be supporting and encouraging investment in, in the housing industry, um, because it's pretty much the only industry, and I'm sure you'd agree, Mitch, that's propping up our economy at the moment. Without it, we'd probably be in recession. So, yes, um, so uh, we need to balance the interests of homeowners at the moment with, of course, uh, young people who want to enter the housing market. Um, but this industry is very important for our country and our future growth and investment, especially with the, the mining boom slowing down and um, with, with our economy transitioning. Mm. So, very nice to hear all your thoughts. Um, we are going to um, go to some interesting more discussions um, after a little break. We'll be speaking to the editors of Farago. But firstly, what do you think, to our listeners, um, what do you think of the proposed measures to ease housing affordability in this year's budget? Has the dream of the white picket fence been revitalised or will we be renting forever? We have an emoji poll on Facebook so head over to facebook.com forward slash represent. You can also follow us on Twitter at represent. Stay tuned, stay political and join the conversation. We are now going to hear from the Treasurer himself explaining colophobia during question time earlier this year. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. Mr. Speaker, this is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't be scared. Won't the Treasurer you. knows the rule on crops. It's coal. It was dug up by men and women who work and live in the electorates of those who sit opposite. From the Hunter Valley, as the member for Hunter would know. It's coal that has ensured for over a hundred years the that Deputy Australia Prime has enjoyed an energy competitive advantage that has delivered prosperity to Australian businesses and has ensured that Australian industry has been able to remain competitive on a global market. Mr Speaker, those opposite have an ideological, pathological fear of coal. 
There's no word for coalophobia officially, Mr Speaker, but that's the malady that afflicts those opposite. But it's that malady, Mr Speaker, that is afflicting the jobs in the towns and the industries and indeed in this country because of their pathological, ideological opposition to coal being an important part of our sustainable and more certain energy future. That was Treasurer Scott Morrison and his Lump of Coal. You are listening to Represents live budget coverage on Sin Nation. Uh, don't forget you can get involved too. So send us a tweet to at Sin Represent or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Sin Represent and you can participate in uh, many of our emoji polls. Yep. So we, before we go and talk more about the details of tonight's very interesting budget, we are joined by Farago editors Alexandra Alvaro and Mary Natalianis to speak with us about the budget lockup and the student media lockout. Um, Farago is a student publication of the University of Melbourne and thank you so much for joining us, um, Alexandra and Mary. I know that you guys have been doing your own budget special <laughs> at Farago and the Fodder, so you know, thank you so much for taking the time to come over. Yeah, thanks thank for having you. us. So much like Represent, um, you guys were planning on sending a few of your teammates at Farago to the budget lockup in Canberra, but you were rejected along with Represent, um, ANU student, po- uh, student magazine Waroni and the University of um, Sydney's student paper Honeyswab. Um, so like Represent as well, Farago's been covering the budget for a few years now and sending reporters to lockup. What was your reaction to being locked out of the lockup? We were absolutely shattered. So we had teed up some training with renowned journalist Tony Wright. He came into the uni. He took time out of his busy schedule to come and chat to our um, eight reporters um, who we'd um, officially sent off to be approved for a media accreditation. Um, and we found out a week later, I think it was maybe like the first, the it first was, of the month. Yeah, it was end. about a week before... Um, tonight, so a week before the um, budget lockup, we found out via an email um, detailing in not very much detail at all. Maybe. Say, what, is, what did you say? <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure our email just said, um, we cannot accept you into yeah. <laughs> the budget lockup, unfortunately, in 2017. And that was it. Yeah, no real no explanation. explanation was offered to us. And um, it kind of left us and all our... Um, our team of young journalists who had been preparing for tonight and who were very, very keen and very excited to um, attend the lockup, quite disappointed and a little bit confused. Mm. Mm. Uh, especially happening on the eve of World Press Freedom Day. Um, it was a couple of days before Press Freedom Day. But coming, yeah. But it was a big week for um, journalists. It really in was. Australia. I mean, because yeah. not only are we not in the budget lockup, but. Fairfax is not in the budget yeah, lockup for other reasons. <laughs> for <Yeah>. other reasons, <laughs> um, yeah. So I think, what does it? I mean, like we're all we're all young journalists. We're all young people in, you know, publishing and student broadcasting and broadcasting in community. Um, what do you think something like this says to young journalists and people who are, you know, community journalists? Well, I think one of the reasons that um, they gave the mainstream media was that we weren't official publications. And, like, to, to us that kind of just says that they don't take us very seriously. And it's it's a bit disappointing because it is kind of where journalists go to train. Like, mm. student media is where jo- journalists form their name. So 
to hear that we're not official enough is yeah pretty, and pretty especially for our go as a publication has been around for I think 93 years this year um, and has been basically training ground for journalists in News Corp in Fairfax um, at the ABC for almost a century to hear that we're not an official publication and that our work isn't recognised by the government. Yeah, that was very disappointing. Mm. I think, um, yeah, like a lot of, I think, SINs won an award, uh, represents won yeah, an award. Yeah, we won a CBAA it. award a few years ago for our budget. Um, for our budget. <laughs> <laughs> Just a little hair flick. But, you know, for our budget coverage in 2015, and we were nominated in 2014. So we've been doing it since Represent's been around because we were established in 2014. Mm. Um, so it's it's been really great, though, having a lot of, um, like, media personnel and you know, studying journalism, a lot of course coordinators have been really supportive and getting behind um, that this is not a right and this isn't right and um, trying to really speak to people in Canberra and trying to get us in like even, you know, a few days ago. So it's been awesome to know that, um, you know, it's not just us being dramatic. Yeah. It's, a real, <laughs> it's a real problem. Um, yeah. So how did you guys plan to um, do your budget coverage? Um, when we were still hoping to go to the lockup, yeah. or like, how did it change? Um, so initially, we were going to do something quite similar to what we did last year in 2016. Um, last year, they sent a contingent of five people up to Canberra, and those people crossed live with a panel of four people on um, on radio fodder. So we had four people in the radio studi- studio, and our budget special generally goes from seven o'clock to about eight thirty, and then at eight o'clock we crossed live over to Canberra and spoke to the people who had just come out of the budget lockup. Obviously this changed this year because um, we didn't have those people to cross over to and we didn't have their information available at 7.30. So we were very much reliant on the mainstream media um, to source our information um, mm. at 7.30 mm. when they all came out of the lockup. So that obviously changed our reporting quite significantly and yeah do you want to add anything to that no yeah I think yeah it was difficult at 7 30 when we knew the when we knew the treasurer was making his speech um we had all like about six journalists outside the room inboxing us all this information and it was just it was like information overload and I think if we had the opportunity to sit for six hours um in the lockup and to scrutinize all that information it would have been such a good outcome but Mm. yeah definitely I definitely agree I I definitely feel that as well um yeah so do you think that maybe because we've been very noisy about this that perhaps next year we'll be allowed back in well before this year the precedent was that student media were allowed into the budget lockup um, Farago had five people in attendance in 2016 and um, one person in 2015. Um, so hopefully after this year and after all the noise that we've caused, co- um, sorry, caused, that we will definitely be allowed in 2018. <laughs> yeah. Here's to <laughs> 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 right, um, so thank you both for coming in. Um, thank you. And sharing our pain. Yes. from Melbourne um, <laughs> and also shout out to Waroni at ANU and Honiswa um, who are in the same boat as us but they're also far far away <laughs> <laughs> so not quite couldn't just they couldn't just run over <laughs> um, but yeah um, in solidarity with in solidarity with them yeah definitely
Uh, don't forget to join the discussion. You can send us a tweet to at SinRepresent or let us know what you think on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. And while you're there, take one of our emoji polls. Here's a little taste of Prime Minister Turnbull's loaded speech during question time. You're listening to Represent's budget special on Sin Nation. Prime Minister. Yeah, thank you, Mr Speaker. Well, we've just heard from that great sycophant of billionaires, the leader of the opposition. All the lectures, the lectures he's trying to run, trying to run a politics of envy. When he was a regular dinner guest at Raheen, always there with Dick Pratt, sucking up to Dick Pratt. Did he knock back the crystal? I don't think so. There was never a union leader in Melbourne that tucked his knees under more billionaires' tables than the Leader of the Opposition. He lapped it up. Oh, yes, he lapped it up. Members on my he right. was such a sycophant, a social climbing sycophant, if ever there was one. There has never been a more sycophantic leader of the Labor Party than this one. And he comes here and poses as a tribune of the people. He likes harborside mansions. He's yearning for one. He's yearning to get into Kirribilli House. You know why? Because somebody else pays for it. And just like he loves knocking back Dick Pratt's crystal, just look forward to living in luxury at the expense of the taxpayer. This man is a parasite. That was Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull addressing Parliament earlier this year. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation, the budget edition. Um, education fees seem to bear the brunt of federal budgets, and this year is no different, with talks surrounding university fee hikes and repayment thresholds being lowered. So Panorama reporter Shannon Schubert spoke with Gwilyn Croucher, who's a senior lecturer at the Melbourne Centre for the Study of Higher Education at the University of Melbourne about higher education in the lead up to tonight's budget release. Sorry about this. So we're not going to go into <laughs> Shannon's package, but we'll just um, dive right into questions about what you think, um, why you think university students seem to bear the brunt of um, federal budgets. Well, it's the thing is that both students and the government are being hit on two fronts. So back when um, Gillard was in power, they, there was a change where they, they removed the restrictions on university placements and they created the demand-based model. So essentially what that did, it created a huge amount of demand for university placements, as was expected. More people got to go to university. But when more people go to university and more people have access to university, that first pushes up the price of university. It makes it more expensive to run a university. And so, and given that the universities are in the position of power, given that it's, diff it's like a government has to establish a new university, um, universities were able to push up fees quite easily. But also, um, other more degrees were offered by other universities that weren't previously, op previously offered. But nonetheless, all the prices kept being pushed up. And on, the sec on, on a similar note, when you hold the cost of repaying a university loan down because university students aren't guaranteed a wage after, so the government kindly tries to reduce the interest rate. But it has the same effect as lowering any interest rate, where it also pushes up the price of university fees. And so that's the first front. The second front is the fact that because everyone now has access to university, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, I'm just saying these are the economic consequences, because everyone has access to a university degree, 
it loses its signaling value for employers. So university degrees were previously basically a really simple way to know, is someone smart? Do they have the skills we need? Well, they have this university degree, they probably do. Whereas now, because everyone has a university degree or more people have access to university degrees, that's no longer sufficient. You've got to look at your extracurriculars. You've got to look at your work experience. You've got to look at well, how many internships you've done. And some employers are going the complete other way. They're not requiring university degrees anymore because they've realized it's not a good indicator. They simply have their own tests. They're taking people straight out of school. And the flip side, other students are being forced to have to get master's degrees or PhDs just to get a foothold into industries because a bachelor's no longer enough. And so because university degrees are no longer as valuable as they once were, the federal government is being whacked on a completely new front because if you give a loan to a university student 30, 20 years ago when only a certain amount of students got degrees, well, it would always get paid back because if you had a university degree, you had a $100,000 a year job waiting for you afterwards, or at least the equivalent of that much. But now, you do a university degree, there's no guarantee you're gonna have a job. So the university degree itself is far less valuable. And so basically you're far less likely to earn your income. And so more and more degrees are never getting paid back. And that's why, for instance, there's of the $52 billion owed to the government in HEX, only their estimates predict that $13 billion of that will never get, get um, paid back. So that's why, that's really, really why the government is in a massive pickle here. And universities too. I think there'll be some long-run strange effects on higher education because of this situation. Harish, your thoughts? Yes, so I'll come at this from a, a political um, level, uh, political abstraction. So the way I look at higher education is it's an investment. It's not a privilege. It's not a right. So no one has a human right to a tertiary education, and the government does not owe you a tertiary education. As uh, Mitch was talking about, um, not everyone has to go to university. A lot of people actually end up, enter labour industries, they become tradies. They, um, if, if you want to set up a, a business, small business, two million Australians um, own or control small businesses. And um, a, a lot of them didn't go to university and get a degree. To own a business, to run a business, you don't really need a degree. So it's an investment. It's something that you, um, you get into and then it, it has some sort of return into the future. So say you pay $50,000 for a law degree and then you go into the workforce and the stats show that people who have a university degree earn $1 million over their um, career, over their life, than a person who does not have a degree. So if you pay $50,000 for a degree and you earn a $1 million more than someone who doesn't have a degree, that's a $950,000 return. So you've obviously made a great investment with that, um, with that degree. So the, the fact of the matter is I don't think the government owes... Um, um, young people a tertiary degree. I think it's something you work for. I think it's something you invest in. And if we do give this investment opportunity uh, to students, and I, I don't think a $3,600 increase is that much, um, and we treat it as an investment as opposed to a benefit or a right, what we'll see is we'll see the quality of education increase, we'll see the quality of teaching increase, we'll see the quality of research increase. Um, so an example of this would be in the Whitlam era. In the 1970s, we had free education. It was unfeasible. Um, obviously, the government has limited funds that they can give to education. Not all the money they have can go to education. Um, because it was government-funded, a lot of international students were blocked out from the system. Um, a lot of private sector companies were blocked out. They couldn't give funding. Research grants um, weren't... Um, the universities weren't able to obtain research grants. When we went to the HEX system under the Hawke government, what we saw was an exponential increase in enrolment. And... Um, more people want to go to university. Why? Because 
you got to pay more for the university, the quality of the education increased and improved, employability increased and improved for people coming out of the university, and the degree was worth a lot more. So the investment was greater. So I think the $3,000 increase in the budget, I think it, it's not deregulation, not complete deregulation. $3,000 is fair. It's not that much. Remember, this system is different from the American system because we have a great loan system. You only pay off the degree after you earn more than $40,000 income every year. Um, and I think it's fair for the government as well because we've got billions of unpaid loans. Um, education funding is increasing. It's unsustainable with the debt and deficit that we have. So we need to balance it. And I think students pay a little bit more. It's not unreasonable. It's not unfair. I think it's the right thing that the government's going down. And uh, I hope we have more reforms in the education sector to come. Tim, you, you want the short answer to this? Why, why do they? Why do they? Uh, why do students uh, have to pay for things like a multi-million-dollar uh, tax cut? The short answer is ideological bastardry. At the end of the day, these people, a conservative coalition. This government, it cannot get its mind away from playing stupid power games with young people. And you see it time and time again. It really, it really makes me really angry with what you guys were talking about before. You know, for what intelligent reason, what is the good in keeping uh, student media, in keeping uh, community media out of the budget blackout? There, there, is, there is no good in it. When there is, you know, Fairfax aren't even in the room, so there's more space in the room than ever before. The reason these people do it, the Liberals, is ideological bastardry. There's a whole lot of ideological nonsense that goes in and on in, in Young Labour and Young Greens and the Young Liberals. The difference with the Liberals is they graduate to a senior party level and it never disappears away from them. And time and time and time again, when they're given a complicated qu uh, question, the answer is, well, let's just hit students with it. Despite what I said earlier about the, the switch to Keynesian economics, you know, you've got Scott Morrison on the, on the, on the mount who finally sees the light of, of Keynesian economic theory. But you can't get these people away from their non-stop desire to give the big end of town a tax cut. And the big end of town, of course, doesn't need a tax cut. The last thing we need right now is to be telling people, sorry, um, actually your intelligence isn't going to determine whether or not you can go to a university. Your, your effort and your, your passion isn't going to determine. What it is, is how rich your parents are. That's how we'll determine who goes to unity and who doesn't. Oh, that's not true at all. No, that's, no, 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 you're talking about ideology. I was quiet while you talked. Hold on just a moment. So what we see is the Turnbull government telling students they'll have to pay an extra $2,000 to $3,600 a year for a four-year course. It's an increase of one8 percent uh, next year and it, it rounds up to being 7.5 percent by the end of 2022 um it's nonsense no one asked for it they weren't elected on on the promise to do it but they've they've wrapped it out anyway to pay for a big spending uh sorry a big tax cut that no one wanted harish i know you want to say something about this you can well well tim is talking a bit about ideology and i think it's a bit hypocritical to talk about ideology when it's when it's Paul Keating that delivered one of the biggest corporate tax cuts in the 80s and the biggest individual income taxes, uh, tax cuts in the, in the 80s as well. Um, and you want to talk about ideology and um, young Liberal members are keeping their, their strong um, ideological principles got, um, into the future when they become politicians. Well, you, all you have to look at is Daniel Andrews. 
and the socialist sort of um, upbringing that he had when he went to Monash and when he, um, in his family, and now he's carried that on as Premier of Victoria with safe schools, all the socialist nonsense with crime and all that. So I think it goes both ways if you're talking about ideology. Um, but in, in regards to higher education, I, I mean, the, the government does a lot for young students and I think they can pay a bit more to have a better quality of education. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it, especially when the government is being swamped by so much debt and debt. There is still a loan system in place. I'm still advocating for merit-based universities. Um, merit is still guiding um, university enrolment. It does not matter how rich you are or how poor you are. Because at the end of the day, you pay this back when you earn over $40,000 um, a year. You don't pay this back. You are not straddled with the debt as soon as you go into university. And it's a joke to say that you are. And it doesn't matter how rich or poor you are. Enrolment is based on merit. It doesn't matter whether you have a million dollars in the bank. If you have a 55 ATA, you're not getting into law at Monash University or Deakin University or anywhere in the state. Yeah, so... Um do we have anything else? Cause just a final concluding thing I'd say is that just from a public finance perspective, I completely understand why, where both people are coming from in this issue, and it's not a simple issue, but purely from the perspective of public finance, as I was saying before, university degrees do not have the same economic value they once did. And so that is really why the government is in, I look in my opinion, in between a bit of a rock and a hard place on this issue. Mm. Yeah, um, should we go to... I just wanted to ask about... Um, uh, university degrees uh, that our leaders um, got to take and they were free. Is it unfair for us to compare um, our education system now, higher education system, and having to pay our fees compared to someone like Malcolm Turnbull who um, he studied a Bachelor of Arts and Law and he didn't have to pay his fees? Do you think that's an unfair comparison? I think it's a, it's a different time. It's a different place. I, 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 I'm sure I could use the you know the easy sword here and, and yeah. thrust it in, but it, 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 you know back in the day the Whitlam government found space in the budget to pay for this. And now no one is seriously suggesting these days that government should pay uh, outright. I'm sure someone is somewhere, but <laughs> no, no one in the Labor Party or the Liberal Party or the Greens or wherever is is seriously suggesting that um, everyone in the country's degree should be paid for out of the, the federal Commonwealth budget. But it is important when people like Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison, who did get a free ride, want to come out and tell peop uh, young people that they can afford to pay a little bit more. Um, it is important to keep that in mind and to keep that perspective. Um, the, the only thing I'll add, which um, is to somewhat related, is that back, back when Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison were doing their degrees, there was a very simple, you do a commerce degree or you do an arts degree or you've got a pathway into a certain course. And I think free markets always operate best when there's more information than less. More information is always a win in a free market environment. And just there's so many really simple things that could contribute to solving this problem. Little things such as, for instance, telling Year 12 students, these are the these are the fields which are actually doing really well. Did you know that, like, when I graduated, or when I'm um, in about 2011 from school, the, the the biggest, highest paying degree would have been agricultural scientist. Do you think some scientifically talented students might have been interested? You know what, I'm interested in science. I'm not fussy. I'll go into agricultural science. And what that does, it solves a shortage 
in mm. agricultural scientists because that's why it's the most valuable degree. There's a shortage in these mm. people. And, we, and it solves a shortage. It creates an ongoing job position. But instead, people are funneled into things such as law because law sounds great. And yeah. law on the TV, everyone's really rich in law. You know where they pay well in law? Only the top, top, top students, the top 15 or top 10% of Monash or Melbourne University graduates get to the big law mm. firms. And the only other place where they pay really well is America and England in the top firms. Whereas the vast majority of law students never practice law. The vast majority of students and law graduates don't earn much more than the median or average wage. Never use their degree. It's mm. also important to keep in mind, I mean, the Whitlam government was dismissed in 1975. The Fraser government was elected out in 1983, the Fraser government, which replaced the Whitlam government. Uh, when the Fraser government was voted out, one in ten people were leaving high school and heading on to university. Um, by the time the Keating government, you know, the next Labor government is it leaves office in 1996, nine out of ten uh, students are leaving high school and heading to university. And in that environment, a uh, university degree has a great signalling value for an employer. Yeah, so, so the, the, our entire tertiary system has changed and the whole the, the nature with which our country views uh, tertiary education has changed. Um, I, I disagree with what was said earlier about tertiary education not being um, a right. I, I think in this country we can expect that it is a right. Anyone who, who wants to go to university should have the ability to go to university, no matter who their parents are or, or what their background is. Well, it's not a right. It's not a right at all because it's a merit-based system. So if, if you don't get the marks and if you don't get the scores, you're not going to get into the degree you want. So, Or you're not going to get into university at all. If you get a very low ATAR, you're not going to get into university at all. So it's not a right based on the merit system and based on the fact that it is an investment, in my opinion, of course. And back to the Malcolm Turnbull point, um, I think it, we're talking about a loan system here. So um, because he got his degree and because he did so well in his degree, he, he successfully used his investment in university, um, got out of the tertiary education system, got a great job in, in the legal sector and would have easily been able to pay it back, obviously, it's worth $150 million. So this is the sort of return we're talking about. Obviously, it's an anecdote and it's Malcolm Turnbull, but most people, the stats show, they earn $1 million more those people who get a degree and $1 million more than those who do not get a degree. So it's obviously a great investment, even if degrees are worth $100,000. And I'm not saying they're going to be ever, even under deregulation. It's a $900,000 gain. All right, we're going to actually return to our Panorama reporter, Shannon Schubert, who spoke with Willen Croucher from the University of Melbourne. Last week, the government announced they will cut university funding as part of reforms to higher education. The announcement follows the government's formal plans to deregulate university fees. Michelle Grattan, professorial fellow at the University of Canberra and a renowned journalist, spoke to Deep Saini in the conversations this week on politics. She agrees the government's proposals surrounding higher education reform and what's being called Gonski 2.0, that is, a needs-based model of funding for education, is a matter of taking from Peter and giving to Paul. Uh, compared to the attempt in 2014, not so much is being taken from Peter in this case for the universities. The universities will take something of a, a squeeze in the budget and students will have to pay more for their courses over the coming years. They'll have to pay back their debt faster and uh, there will be various uh, efficiency dividends and other benchmarks imposed on the universities. What we know so far is this. Students will have to pay more for their university degree. 
they'll pay 46% of their degrees instead of the 42% they are now paying. This will add a maximum of $3,600 for a four-year bachelor degree. Students will also have to pay the debt back earlier. Currently, students have to begin repayment of the loan when their income reaches $55,000. It is understood that the income threshold will lower to $42,000 from mid-2018. Education Minister Simon Birmingham says that is 20% above the full-time minimum wage. The government is pointing to an independent report by Deloitte Access Economics. The report says the average cost of delivery per student has increased by 9.5%, while government funding per student grew by 15%. The Australian government over the next four years will spend $28 billion on our higher ed sector. Uh, what we're asking um, students to do is to make a contribution towards that, and that contribution will go up from... 43 cents in the dollar to 46 cents in the dollar. We're keeping the system demand-driven. We're making sure that degrees will uh, remain aff affordable. What? That was Federal Member for Wanon, Dan Tehan, on last night's Q&A program. Here is what Labor Senator Lisa Singh had to say. Students having to pay back their hex debt <laughs> a, a lot sooner, a lot le lesser income. I mean, the government's going to fund it by, unfortunately, attacking those who can least afford it. Research by the Universities of Australia says nearly $4 billion has been cut from the sector since 2011. Commentators say universities and students will share the hit. Here is what Michelle Grattan from the University of Canberra had to say. Now, universities, on the other hand, have taken a large hit. It's not as bad as it could have been, but it is still quite bad. Students are going to have to pay a larger share of, uh, of, of the cost of their education. They are going to have to pay it earlier at a lower income threshold and so on. Uh, and the university's funding would go down. Yes, it is hard on them, and especially in these days when uh, the whole question of housing affordability has come to the fore. A young person finishing their education not only has a lot of debt, uh, but they have to try and get together a deposit for a house in these circumstances. So compared to when education, university education was free in this country, there's a lot of difference for uh, a, a young person coming out of uh, the university system. But Willem Groucher, senior lecturer from the Melbourne Centre for the Study of Higher Education from the University of Melbourne, says there are some potential positives in the government's reforms. You know, one initiative in particular is going to be very important for universities and students, uh, and in particular students that are in you know, regional areas uh, or who have faced disadvantage, and that's support for the, the HEP scheme. And so what this scheme does is it provides money specifically for uh, universities to offer initiatives to get people into higher education that you know, may have faced some barrier, they may be well supported. So these schemes uh, mean that they can get additional funding uh, to get them in. It's also to, to keep them there once they're uh, in higher education. So it's, it's very welcome that they've provided money for this. Uh, and it's allow for. Why is this government targeting students to save money? They are quite measured, quite modest and quite balanced. Yes, a modest increase in fees, although the government will still pay the majority of a student's university fees on average, around 54%. Uh, down just by a few percentage points. Let's step back a second, look at life for young Australians with ability and how hard it is for young people to save for a deposit for a home. Now, just to make it even harder for them, once they earn a bit over the base rate for a McDonald's worker in New South Wales, they have to start paying back the cost of their university degree. 
think it's important that we actually get these debts paid back uh, so that we actually can maintain in the future the same type of generous student loans payment arrangement and fee arrangement that ensures that no student going to an Australian university, regardless of their background, need pay $1 up front. That was Lee Sales talking to Education Minister Simon Birmingham last week on ABC's 7.30 program. We know these changes will affect students and universities, but we're still awaiting further details to be revealed in tonight's budget. Gwilym Croucher from the University of Melbourne says this about the details yet to be unveiled in the budget. I guess one of the, the things that a lot of people around uh, the sector and in universities and students themselves are questioning is, you know, what is the government's vision for higher education? So it's, you know, it's one thing to cut and it's another thing to say, yes, we support some equity measures. Um, but we're, you know, we're interested in what uh, the government thinks higher education should look like. Who do they think should attend higher education? You know, how many universities we should, should we have? You know, what should they look like? Uh, you know, and what sort of support they're going to provide? So an understanding of what they think Australian higher education should be. That was Panorama Reporter speaking with Gwilyn Croucher from Melbourne University for Represents Budget Special. We're now joined by our Canberra correspondent, Claudia Long. Hello. Hey. How are you going? Hey guys. I'm good. I'm here on the forecourt of Parliament House in the cold. It's pretty, it's pretty chilly up here. So we, um, we're going to start off with asking you uh, about the government's plans for higher education um, and how um, that's been handed down and what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, um, we've heard a lot about higher education in the lead-up to this budget. It's definitely been one of the things the government has been looking to talk about. We've heard a lot from Education Minister Simon Birmingham uh, selling these new measures that the government has announced tonight. They've, uh, they've handed them down and basically university fees are looking like they're going to rise. Our students are going to have to pay an extra 2000 to $3,600 for a four-year course. Uh, if you can't do the math that quickly, that's an increase of about 1.8% by next year. Um, and so that was obviously that's something that students are a bit concerned about. I've actually seen quite a few protesters down here tonight uh, trying to get on the telly in the background with a couple of chants of no cuts, no fees, no corporate universities, uh, which those of us at UD might be familiar with hearing uh, various protests. So it's, it's definitely a pretty heated issue, and it's something that I think uh, the government's going to have to be talking about for quite a while. It is a centrepiece of this budget, this change. We've been hearing a lot about it in the lead-up, and I think we can expect to hear a lot more about it in the in the short term and long term. Um, and also, it's not just university fees that um, are part of the budget. What is happening with primary and high school funding? Um, well, we've heard a lot about that too. So the federal government's actually going to be giving schools an extra $18.6 billion over the next decade. Um, you might have heard the phrase Gonski 2.0, and that's what this kind of being billed as. The Greens have actually potentially put their support behind this, so they've said that they're open to negotiating with the government and potentially looking at passing these changes. They're pretty pleased that the government's looking at potentially taking away funding from what they're calling elite private schools. So it looks like this... ...BC... Uh, as for primary schools and secondary schools. But it's something that we're going to, again, have to discuss on the program. ...to look through these documents ourselves. But for in terms of primary and high school education funding, this is being labelled as a win. Uh, so the last time the Coalition tried to make changes to higher education funding, that didn't really play out so well. So should we expect the same thing to happen this time? 
I think so. I've just been chatting with the NUS women's roster, Abby Stapleton, and she's saying that they're going to put up a pretty big fight on this one. Um, you can expect to see a lot of protests, a lot of demonstrations. They're going to be lobbying pretty hard. Um, I know a lot of university students that I've spoken to, a lot of my friends are pretty concerned about this, uh, especially uh, the potential lowering of the HEX repayment threshold. Um, so I think we're going to be seeing a lot of students out on the streets. Uh, a couple of people that I've spoken to who otherwise weren't particularly interested in politics, they're actually feeling pretty motivated to get out and protest. So this could be a bit of a turning point for some students as well. I think the difference is going to be, unlike what we saw in 2014 with that first budget handed down by Joe Hockey and Tony Abbott, which was obviously incredibly popular, which included these kinds of changes to higher education, uh, like deregulation, for instance, was on the table then, and that proved to be extremely unpopular. I think the difference is there's a lot of other changes in this budget that aren't going to be as unpopular. It, may, it seems to me that um, university students are one of the only kind of groups that may, as far as we know tonight, obviously it's very early on, that may be uh, kind of the hardest hit, who may be some of the losers in this instance. Um, because I reckon there are some changes in here that are going to be pretty, pretty popular with people on the left, with younger students potentially as well. So we'll have to wait and see. Uh, did you also want to talk about uh, what uh, major changes to welfare you thought, thought were interesting? Yeah, I think one of the ones that I'm interested in is this 500,000 um, welfare recipients who are going to be part of a trial drug test. So you probably heard Scott Morrison in his speech talking about this. I think it might shape up to be a bit of a controversial one. Um, essentially, 500,000 welfare recipients uh, are going to be part of this trial of drug testing. If they're found to test positive for drugs, they'll be put on a cashless welfare card. So you may have heard of that before. It has been trialled in some Indigenous communities, and essentially you can't buy alcohol. Obviously, you can't buy illegal drugs. You're not meant to be buying illegal drugs in any case, uh, but you obviously can't buy them with this cashless welfare card. So it's meant to kind of direct spending uh, to positive things, food, groceries, all that sort of business. But uh, we'll have to see, because obviously this is, in in a civil liberties kind of point of view, this could be quite controversial. So that's what I'm definitely going to be looking at. And infrastructure is always at the heart of any budget. So what's the government uh, planning to do with that? Um, well, the government has already put some. They've said they're going to be putting some money towards rail. Um, we saw in last we saw in last year's budget actually um, quite a lot of money invested into freight. That's continuing. Uh, so obviously, this government uh, is very keen to kind of position themselves as a government that builds a lot of infrastructure. You know, they want to be seen as getting things going, helping business get where they need to be. And I think part of that is kind of helping transport. So obviously, freight kind of plays into that. But certainly, uh, another really important part of the budget. All right, well, thank you, Claudia from Canberra. Uh, we're now going to hand it over to Jackie Lambie, who read the wrong oath when pledging her allegiance to Australia mm-hmm. on Australia Day. You're listening to Represents Budget Special on Sin Nation. G'day. Let's celebrate Australia Day and say with pride our oath of allegiance. From this time forward, under God, I'll pledge my loyalty to Australia and its peoples, whose democratic beliefs I share, whose rights, liberties I respect, and whose laws I will uphold and obey. Remember, if you don't like our democratic rights, liberties and laws, equality for all, including women, gay and indigenous people, there are plenty of other countries to choose from. Keep safe and have a happy Australia Day. That was Jackie Lambie there. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation and it is the budget special and we are covering it live from Sin Nation. So we will be talking a little bit about defence funding. So, Tash? Uh, I just wanted to ask, it's um, something that sort of comes up a lot in budgets and last year it was a main issue. 
um, about 2%, spending 2% of GDP on defence. Why is that an important thing? We might just start with Harish. Uh, yes, I think it's good. We've got to the 2% target earlier than expected, um, according to this budget. Uh, I think it's quite important to uh, spend um, on defence. And, and remember, it's not just defence regarding military, it's, it's immigration as well. So we're, we're putting the money into Operation Sovereign Borders, which I think is a very good policy. Um, it's what the coalition took to the last election. We've delivered on that policy, but it does um, cost a lot to vet refugees on Nauru and Manus. It costs a lot to keep the borders secure. It costs a lot to keep people smugglers from um, continuing on, um, to stop them from uh, continuing, on, continuing on with their illegal trade. Also, I think the, the, the global political environment, as it is with the, with the conflict in uh, the pending conflict or the potential conflict in the Korean Peninsula with the nuclear crisis um, being waged between Trump and um, Kim Jong-un, we also have a South Korean conflict um, much closer to home, which could affect us. It could impact trade. Uh, we all already know that China is sending ships in that area and China is setting sovereignty over that area, which could affect tra trade between China, Japan and Australia, our biggest trading partners. So it's very important to um, engage in defence spending. And I think uh, Gillard and Rudd, um, I don't think they've reduced spending that much, but um, they, they, they didn't see it as a priority. And I think for a Liberal government, two priorities are national security, and um, budgetary reform and keeping the economy going and keeping the, the economy sustainable and growing into the future. And I think we, we're certainly delivering on one part of that and um, the economy side is, is yet to come. So I'm, I'm very happy with this side of the budget. Um, I think our allies like the United States and the UK expect us to increase our defence budget because we have such an important geographical position regarding uh, conflicts and um, tensions in the South China Sea and on the Korean Peninsula. And I think we are, um, we're doing very well in this area. Tim, your face went through a really interesting... There's lots of emojis just then. Defence doesn't tend to be a, a partisan issue in Australia. Um, all the major parties are basically on, on track when it comes to defence. Um, Labor's not going to take an issue with this, and I, Labor rightly shouldn't. Um, it's it, as I say, it, there's, it's not drawn on partisan lines. There's nothing yep. particularly conservative or progressive about this. It's the reality of the situation. Um, uh, the defence white paper called for um, uh, spending to, to hit the two percent mark. The most important thing that Australia needs to deal with right now is come to terms with where we are in the region. We've been trying to do that since the 1990s. Um, the South China Sea is a hugely, uh, hugely important issue that is about to hit the breaking point, and we don't know what it's going to look like when it hits that breaking point. Um, one country claiming land that another country controls is a situation we've seen many times before. One country claiming the land of seven different countries or so, um, sending warships through. Uh, with another superpower saying you can't do that, we don't know how to deal with that situation, and it's on our doorstep. Um, mm. So making sure we have uh, the strategic ability to you know, deal with the, the pressing needs of modern times is important. Yeah. Uh, Mitch, any thoughts? Oh, not much to add at all. It'd be nice if we didn't have to spend that money and we could cut taxes or something and give it back to the people, but unfortunately, defence is a reality of the world we live in. 
Yeah, definitely. So um, there are also plans to improve services for um, retired veterans re-entering civilian life, um, in spe- particularly in regards to mental health and physical health. Do you think that we're doing enough for veterans and is it justified, you know, to spend more on, on you know, um, you know, spend more on military and spend less on foreign aid? But, you know, like, is the is the cost that we're putting into our military versus the cost that we're putting into our veterans? Like, does it does it add up? Does it is it? Well, uh, veterans and foreign aid is two completely different questions. Are we doing enough on foreign aid? Absolutely not. Um, year in, year out, the Liberals have just slashed and slashed and slashed foreign aid. We have seen a change in policy here. Instead of a slash, we've seen a freeze. Um, it's not good enough. Uh, the last election, Labor committed to reversing the changes. Um, I personally hope that Labor can commit to the next election doing the same. It's, it's getting harder and harder to do that. Um, we have a real role to play, particularly in countries near us, like Timor leste um, in terms of you know, the, the great work that Australian foreign aid once once did. We, we haven't seen that anymore. Veterans is a completely different issue. Mm. Um, it's my personal belief that you shouldn't commit uh, an Australian man or woman to fight overseas if you're not then prepared to bring them home and treat them with respect and civility like you would any other citizen. Um, war is a horrific thing. Awful things happen to people who see combat situations and it stays with them for the rest of their lives. Um, uh, I think, you know, Jackie Lambie is actually a really terrific advocate of this, as an independent senator from Tasmania, and she often brings up the fact that uh, we leave people behind, mentally, not physically. Um, so I do think we need to have a bit more of a conversation, and, and I think it would be good to see some sort of um, royal commission or, or federal investigation into what we can be doing in a non-partisan way, because as I said, defence isn't a partisan issue. Neither should should veterans affairs um, and it'd be good to see Labor, Liberal and National Policy kind of head into a similar direction in terms of treating these people with the respect that they deserve. Harish or Mitch? Uh, yeah, well I support Tim's comments on, um, on veterans, uh, just I guess on foreign aid. Uh, yes, we have slash spending to uh, to uh, you know, arrest the debt that uh, Labor incurred over the six, their six years in government. And uh, we've not only um, reinvested that into uh, um, to reducing the debt, but uh, I saw in the the budget that was released by Scott Morrison that we've put um, some money into homelessness, so homelessness funding. So I think we're... I think the real aim of the government is to um, improve what's going on at home and... Um, ensure that we look after our own people before we uh, look after people in third world nations and I think that's that's a very good priority to set and I think uh, the budget showcases that priority very well. Um, I completely agree with the discussion regarding veterans. Um, with the foreign aid discussion I very disappointedly have to agree with Harish because the empirical evidence on foreign aid spending unfortunately is devastating. Foreign aid spending by governments has had almost no impact overseas. There's very little evidence that world aid organisations and any private organisations have achieved any any um, improvement. And this is not from me, not from any kind of right-wing biased source. This is from William Easterly, who is an economist with the World Bank, with the IMF. He spent his life trying to fight poverty, and he watched project after project do more harm than good. He wrote a book called White Man's Burden and basically discussed how trillions and trillions of dollars 
have been invested into poor countries around the world and the outcome has, if anything, been devastatingly negative. Um, so with a lot of sadness, I have to, as someone who's donated plenty of times to charity before, I have to support the Liberal decision to slash foreign aid spending. I think the most efficient way to improve the well-being of poor people in developing countries are free trade agreements. Uh, basically creating an environment where they have access to our resources, they have, we have access to theirs, and as long as it's fair, as long as it's, for instance, there's plenty of examples of it going wrong the wrong way. I mean, if you look at the US attitude to trading with African countries, it's, it's devastating. And one of the classic things they do is that they create these huge surpluses in particular for, like the agricultural areas. And because they, because they have a crony system where they subsidise particular businesses they like, um, the farmers create too much corn and then so the Americans send the corn overseas as, look, we're giving people food. What it actually does, it destroys the local farming industry in these um, African and developing nations. And so I think we have to be very wary of, even though it's in the heart and the compassion of giving foreign aid is a wonderful thing, the empirical evidence does not say it's done any good, unfortunately. The only um, World Aid Organization that actually has really achieved some great outcomes is uh, the Bill Gates um, Foundation, which is really just focused on empirical data and health outcomes. He's targeted hospitals, targeted health almost exclusively, and he's achieved some really great outcomes. So I think we could learn a lot from him. So we're going to change tact uh, from defence spending and foreign aid and go down the good debt, bad debt path and sort of give an explainer of what that is, if Mitch, you would like to take yeah, that Yeah, sure. So if you imagine you run a business, imagine you run a bakery, for instance. Now, the good debt in that bakery, according to Scott Morrison, is the loan you take to buy the shop and the loan you take to maybe purchase the relevant equipment that's going to last for a while. That's good debt because it's going to have a return for your business. The bad debt would be if you had to borrow money to pay for your workers, if you had to pay wages. That would be Scott Morrison's version of bad debt because that's a recurring spending, applying that to the government. So a good debt is debt building a bridge, building a train line. Um, bad debt is would be um, basically having to pay for welfare services on an ongoing basis. And there, there is a certain logic to this because basically one-off payments you can comfortably pay with loan, but ongoing recurring payments you don't want to have to borrow money to pay for because it's unsustainable, and that's the underlying concept behind good debt, bad debt. What are your thoughts on good debt, bad debt, can Tim? I, can I ask Mitch a question? Is that okay? <laughs> can I? And, and if you don't want to answer this, please don't answer this. Mitch, why is it weird hearing Treasurer Scott Morrison come out with stuff like this? Well, it, 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 okay, I can see why it is odd from a Liberal's perspective because f free market economists are very wary of the concept of good debt. And it's not simply, we're not talking about a business or private enterprise situation, we're talking about a government spending situation. Because, because there's a lot of economic evidence that there's problems, not always, there's a lot of great government infrastructure projects. Dan Andrews' uh, level crossings, that's, I think, the productivity gains are mm. undeniable. So I'm not, it's not a blanket rule. But there's a lot of economic theory that says that governments aren't very good at spending on projects. And the reason is not because public servants are incompetent or not because of any kind of cruelty or incompetence. The reason is because the government doesn't face a profit incentive. Mm -hmm. And because they don't face a profit incentive, they don't minimise costs. And they don't have to come up with the best idea that does the best thing. So, for ex and so that's one reason why, because so that's called the social calculation issue. And the other issue is that politicians are motivated by votes. Um, if we treat politicians as economic actors who want to get as many votes as possible, they'll yeah. focus on big projects which sound great, 
well, not accident, not necessarily having the best economic return. And we can see the real thing with the, the hydro, um, Snowy Hydro Station is a classic example of this, which Australians love that project. They're very mm. passionate about the project. But as unfortunately was pointed out in Utopia, it's almost never made a positive return. It's, uh, the, the return on the investment is almost non-existent. Um, and so there's some of these um, infrastructure projects, such as the inline freight rail, could be great outcomes. But I get nervous about, for instance, uh, the Western Sydney Airport because Sydney Airport wasn't willing to put its own money in because they weren't they were worried they wouldn't make a return. Mm. And that doesn't. And the thing is, the Brisbane Airport has expanded its own airport by spending 1.35 billion dollars. So private businesses will invest in infrastructure if they think it's worthwhile. Yeah. yeah. Harish, any thoughts on this? So, um, the way I see good debt and bad debt is. The distinction between good debt and bad debt, in my opinion, is the equivalent between what government should do and what government shouldn't do with taxpayers' money. Now, taxpayers um, want the government to spend their money efficiently and effectively. So when you talk about big government and small government, the way I look at it is if we're efficient and effective, then government will be smaller because government will be spending money wiser instead of um, just spending money on cash splashes. so, so that's how I see good debt and bad debt. So when it comes to good debt, infrastructure spending really comes out. And I think Mitch was talking about that. The government's spending on airports, on roads, on rails. There's, a, there's an amazing project coming up with uh, the Brisbane-Melbourne rail link that's being talked about. Um, talked about, yes. Um, but there's actually money going into it, and there's millions of dollars going into it in this budget. And I think it's a, a, it's a really good idea, because what, what happens with this? This is good debt, because the government is investing the money into the economy. Jobs are being created, created as a result. Yeah. And these sort of projects like rail, road, um, airports, these investments aren't really um, taken on by the private sector, because of because they don't see it as a, as a great return on their investment. So the government has to chip in. The government has to put money in these areas. And as a result, we see greater investment in the economy, greater jobs growth, greater economic growth from what the government is doing. So the government is using their money more effectively and efficiently. And as a result, they're fulfilling their obligation to the public. And that's what the public expect from them. Now, bad debt, on the other hand, are the cash splashes that I was talking about. So during the six years of Gillard and, and Rudd, we saw um, billions of dollars wasted on the paint bat scheme for insulation, which nothing came out of it. We saw billions of dollars on school halls. It's just wasted money, debt and deficit. So at the end of the uh, six years, we had $300 billion billion of debt and not many outcomes and results to show for it. So it was just spending on these uh, sort of asinine promises, asinine projects. And as a result, we saw lots of money in debt that we were struggling to pay off now, not many results, not many outcomes. And as a result, I don't believe the Labor government of the past um, fulfilled their promise of successfully... um, you know, providing the people with efficient and effective government. And I hope the Liberals do it with their infrastructure promises uh, because this is a good idea and good debt is what we should be investing in, not bad debt when it comes to government. Tim, what are your thoughts on good so, debt, bad debt? Yeah, it, it really does signal a, a, just a change in um, economic philosophy and it'll be interesting to see how long that sticks around a Conservative government. I can't see this sort of philosophy being very popular with the branch members and you know, people who all their lives have been economic conservatives. Um, once again, uh, the, the the deficit of the government has been pushed larger and larger and larger. It is good to see, though, these infrastructure uh, projects getting, getting a go. 
I mean, Western Sydney Airport is something that should have happened in the 1960s. Um, it's, you know, every, it's been talked about by everyone of any sort of importance, and it's great to see it finally happening. Um, uh, Abbott and Hockey announced um, the inland rail. That is a critically needed project. It's a great idea that the Liberal Party's had. Um, but it got announced at two budgets, and then uh, Turnbull and Morrison took over, and it's been announced three different budgets uh, after that. It sort of keeps being rolled out. Millions of dollars keep being committed to it, and it's going nowhere. Um, I know that because I check in on the project every now and again just to see if cracks have been laid or anything. It just still gets sort of kicked back another decade or whatever. Um, it'd be great to see that happen. Uh, I think the, the, the commitment to infrastructure spending is a really wonderful thing for the Australian people to see. Because, you know, as, as um, Mitch says, you know, Private business doesn't see the attraction of this. There isn't a short-term sort of um, uh, gain in their eyes economically. Governments need to do these things because it's a social good. It's a social need. You know, people need this sort of thing in order to make their lives better. And long-term, usually there is a financial gain to this sort of thing. Um, but it is long-term, and usually only government is what can, can see that out. Um, recently, we've had shorter and shorter term governments, governments that struggle to get past two terms. So government has sort of hesitated about doing this sort of thing um, recently. What I did think was particularly interesting, and you know, young people uh, like myself would, would find this sort of fascinating, is as great as it is to see the government commit to building Western Sydney Airport, and, and don't get me wrong, I really do support the Turnbull government here in doing that, John Wagner um, and his family built Australia's largest uh, airport since Melbourne Airport was built in the 1950s. They built Western Brisbane Airport in Toowoomba. Uh, they did a terrific job on their own land with their own money. They built a full-scale international airport. And what they came out and said was uh, that they just they can't get their head around the government's figures here. Um, they can't see why it would take 10 years to build uh, Badgerys Creek. They can't see why they're doing it with such a huge budget. And uh, John Wagner himself almost humorously, offered to build it for the government this morning in three years for a tenth of the price. This is a classic example of a social calculation problem where private enterprise is very good at being efficient. Mm. It's just an example in point. That's what yeah, it it's just, just a funny remark. I just found it almost bizarre, but very mm. interesting, you know. Last thing, last thing I'd add on infrastructure is that always be wary of anyone telling you that building this new thing, building this hole in the ground, building this bridge will create new jobs. Because yeah, now, not saying the bridge is necessarily a bad thing, the bridge might be a great investment, but that money to spend that bridge is always coming at the expense of private sector spending, which could have um, created just as many or if not more jobs. So there's always an opportunity cost. So be wary, of, and, and all parts, sides of politics are guilty of this. The only person who isn't probably is David Lionel, but he's, he's, he's in a minority. <laughs> he's guilty of many other things, let's be honest. Mm, definitely. Um, so the, the whole kind of term, we're going we're gonna to go into semantics really quickly and just very briefly, is, you know, back when um, Joe Hockey was around, which is a while ago now, um, you know, he used the term um, lifters and leaners. Do you think that this is a similar term, good debt, bad debt, or or is it just completely different? It's similar in the way that it won't stick around the Liberal Party very long. I hate to be the, the person of certainties and forecasters. <laughs> it is similar in the way that this sort of rhetoric will die very quickly. Um, the good debt, bad debt routine, I, I promise you this, and, and seriously... Sue me if I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> when the shortened Labor government is elected at the next government, uh, the next election, 
this this oh, this whole philosophy about good debt and bad debt and Keynesian economics it's going to it's going to disappear from the liberal and national party rooms very very quickly now, that's my little cheek sorry hold on that's my cheeky little remark let me let me uh, hold on here for a second um it's 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 kind of it's, it's a way that that um and it, I'll you know jump out of my political hat here. It's something that treasurers try to do. They try to grab grab the um, electorate's imagination with um, an easy to remember term um, that you can sort of you know a- anyone who understands the household budget can can grapple with. In that way, it's actually quite a good thing yeah. using this sort of language. Um, but like I say, there is some hypocrisy here at play. I'll leave it there. <laughs> well, I think good debt, bad debt really has some meaning to it. As I said, you know, good debt, we're looking at infrastructure spending, spending that um, government can, can use to prop up the economy, to invest in the economy, to grow the pie, to grow, grow jobs and growth, as, as Turnbull likes to say. Um, and, and I think bad debt is something where we look at just cash splashes, where we see government just not fulfilling their responsibility to the people when they're just spending money for the sake of spending money to look good, to make a political statement, but there's no actual outcome or result. I think it's the difference between the Labor and the Liberal Party. The Liberal Party care about opportunities for people, whereas Labor just care about, um, you know, outcomes. They just care about, um, you know, the, the, trying to make a big political statement, like a lavish political statement to say that we got some result, we got some outcome. But I think it's all about giving opportunity for people, giving them you know, a foundation, a basis in which to grow the economy, to invest the economy. And I think infrastructure spending is absolutely brilliant because it it gives people a platform um, to invest in the economy. It gives people a platform to to get a job in in infrastructure developments and projects. And I think overall it helps economic growth. And and we've seen that over successive governments. When infrastructure spending is prioritised, the economy does better. Yeah. Um, Mitch, you have anything to say on, on the on the semantics of <laughs> good debt, bad debt? Uh, the only thing I'd say is that I actually have to disagree with my Labour friend because I think that it will stick around because it's in Treasury's interests for it to stick around. And the reason they can do it is that so um, politicians can invest in these massive spending projects and then take it off the budget bottom line. Mm. So the budget looks a lot better. That's and that's so there's an incentive for it to stick around because I get you get to put it in the corner, and of course the oppositions will always bash um, the, the incumbent government and say that oh you haven't included all these other expenditures you're doing because it's not on your budget line but you know and then when they're in power they'll do the same thing. Uh, another thing is, do you think that the way Scott Morrison has presented the budget will have any effect on Australia's triple A credit rating? I'm going to start with Mitch for this one. This is a tough one. I don't think Scott Morrison's presentation will be the main issue. I think the AAA credit rating will really come down to the forecasts. Um, Scott Morrison, thankfully, has continued to maintain a conservative approach to mining revenues, and one of the tough things that Wayne Swan and some of the Labor treasurers struggle with is because they kept getting told by these um, economists and econometricians that mining revenues is going to increase. So they'd say, oh, okay, great, our budget's going to come back. And then, of course, they didn't. And the reality is that as clever as statistical techniques are, forecasting is very, very hard. And so, and it's always, and so the, I think the big, um, the rating agencies will come along, they'll have a look, they'll look at the forecast, they'll see there's some conservative um, measures taking place, they'll see that there's a budget surplus predicted in 2021. And I think they'll, 
may at least either keep the status quo, which is triple uh, A, but with a you know bad looking forward, or they'll upgrade it to just triple A on its own. Um, I didn't phrase that very well, but that's, that's <laughs> it's that like you know whole A A minus A plus. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the more um, A's the better. Harish, uh, any thoughts on the triple A rating and this budget? Um, as I said, when it comes to uh, debt, I, I think they are bringing it under control. I, I still like more in regards to spending cuts, but it's, I understand it's very difficult to get things through the Senate. So. Um, they're manoeuvring a bit towards uh, taxes instead of uh, prioritising spending cuts because that's uh, the most meaningful way they can reform the, the budget and bring the deficit and debt um, under control. It was interesting um, to note that Peter Costello um, a few years ago talked about the fact that we could lose our AAA credit rating if in the next 10 years it is foreseeable that the budget debt could explode, get out of hand, and it could be $1 trillion. Now, we always talk about percentages between debt and GDP. At the moment, I think it's about, correct me if I'm wrong, Mitch, but it's about 30 35% debt-to-GDP ratio. If it gets to $1 trillion, that'll be about 50%. And that becomes very worrying. Now, we get into the sort of um, ratios where, where some European countries are, where um, you know maybe New Zealand is at, and um, where it gets to 50% and we have a one-speed economy where we're relying on property investment and the mining boom is falling away. Um, the finance industry is not doing that well. We're not able to transition our economy as well as we hope for. Remember, our, our economy is stagnating still. I think it's very dangerous when we get to a level of that debt of $1 trillion and we, we don't have any plan or any measures to do anything about it. And that's where um, Australians should be worried. And I, I think that sort of um, debt level will have an effect, not only on our AAA credit rating, which is very important, but I think that will have a wider negative impact on the economy as a whole. Uh, it could lead to greater unemployment, could lead to a recession, and that's something we don't want. So I think AAA credit rating, yes, we want to keep it, but uh, we need to bring down debt, not just because of the AAA credit rating, but because of the wider negative economic um, impacts that it could have. Um, team? Going so you've got, you got Standard & Poor's, you've got Fitch, and you've got Moody's Investor Service. I, I just looked that up because I wanted to make sure I got my big three right. But they are the big three investor service. Mitch just give me the thumbs up. Yay, I'm doing economics right. And, um, and I wanted to explain this because I, I know I, I've sat at home a million times before and heard people talk about the big, uh, big uh, AAA credit rating, and it's just gone straight over me. So for those listening at home, that's, that's what it is. You, you've got your three investing services, and... And they determine whether or not uh, a country has a triple A credit rating, which is like getting your A plus. It's it's the, the best thing possible. Now, firstly, I wouldn't trust Peter Costello on anything he has to say about getting a triple uh, A credit rating or losing one. The man was treasurer for a very long time and completely failed to ever get us one. It was Kevin Rudd and Wayne Swan that got us the triple A credit rating. What's interesting is that of those three big investing services, the big three that's talked about in economics a lot. Moody's actually came out today and questioned the growth forecasts that the government's put out that supposedly underpin the budget. And they've completely questioned the ability of the government to get the um, budget back to surplus. They, they just don't think the road really exists uh, and they want to see more evidence from the budget to sort of back up this stuff. Um, Labor got the, the AAA credit rating um, from the three different credit agencies. It was the first time in Australian history and I think we should be very worried that only a few years later, um, after you know we've just entered our, our second term of a Liberal government, you have one of the big three 
credit rating agencies come out and say, look, you're in danger of losing that status. Um, it, despite the liberal rhetoric about being the credible economic managers, it's not backed up when you give the stats, not just with that, but also with the OECD index ranking. Yeah, some of the trends in, um, in the Australian economy, oh, look, as we, as we said right at the start, are very positive. Um, but again, forecasting has been such a dangerous um, thing in this in recent times. But also, I th- I'm sure that Moody's, I'm just um, speculating here, mm. um, but I have no doubt they took into account the current state of the West Australian economy, the current state of the South Australian economy, and the current state of um, the housing market. There are some very intelligent people who yeah. have put their economic reputation at stake predicting a bubble, um, and which is a dangerous thing to do because plenty of economists have lost all their credibility mistiming such a prediction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So it's... So it, it, I think there are good reasons to be very wary of these um, econometric techniques. I think macroeconomic forecasting is just a hazardous field. So we should always be wary um, of these predictions. And again, uh, the, the Gillard government, the, Kevin, the Rudd government and under Treasurer Wayne, uh, Wayne Swan suffered, as I said earlier, suffered from the same problem over and over again. So it makes perfect sense to me that Moody's is quite wary. Yeah, well, back on to the, to the credit rating, um, well, in regards to Labor getting the AAA credit rating, that came off the back of 10 budget surpluses handed down by Peter Costello with money in the bank that we gave to Labor. So I think you can give a lot of credit to Peter Costello and John Howard, who were in government for the 12 years before the AAA credit rating came into force, um, for gaining that AAA credit rating. And I think the central question regarding the AAA credit rating, the central issue, is um, debt. If we get debt under control and if we focus on prioritising budget repair and budget reform, then uh, the credit rating into the future um, will stay strong. Uh, That's what Peter Costello did with the 10 budget surpluses and uh, I think that's what the Liberal government should do into the future. And I think they're trying to do that. It's a very difficult um, situation that they're faced with with Senate reform. And um, this budget is a clear indication that they are attempting to prioritise budget repair. Um, we see debt at $29 billion now when it was $40 billion a couple of years ago. And I think that's a great start, but we need to get to, to surplus um, sooner rather than later, and I hope we do achieve it by 2021. Uh, but as, as Mitch said, it's hard to forecast, hard to forecast budgets, hard to forecast credit ratings. Um, we'll just have to wait and see over the next few years. Very, very interesting stuff. So be sure to check out our Facebook page for Represents Budget Night emoji polls by visiting Facebook at facebook.com forward slash sinrepresent or send us a tweet to at sinrepresent. Before we go on, let's reminisce on that memorable press conference between Australian, sorry, South Australian Premier Jay Weverill and Federal Energy Minister Josh Frydenberg. You're listening to Represents Budget Night special on Sin Nation. Minister, is this, a, is this all a little bit awkward? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, um... In place. Was your announcement today designed to embarrass the state government? Or... <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest, I didn't, I didn't even know Jay was going to be here, but I, you know, welcome his, uh, his, uh, his presence. Mountain expansion announcement is that, oh, is no. that t- the timing of that design to um, no, one, up, one, not, up, one up and shoot? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do point out 2000 megawatts is 20 times the size of the battery. Um, that Jay, but look, this is a that's a national scheme. That's a national scheme. Find this primitive, find this a bit gone. Yes, then. I mean, it's it's uh, it shows that the Commonwealth Government 
are in a white-knuckled panic about national energy policy. We're not going to wait four to seven years, though, to invest in some snowy hydro scheme. I've got to say, it is a little galling to be standing here next to a man that's been standing up with his Prime Minister, bagging South Australia at every step of the way over the last six months, to be standing here on this occasion, him suggesting that we want to work together. It is a disgrace the way in which your government has treated our state is the most anti-South Australian government we have seen from a Commonwealth government in living memory. And for you to then turn around within a few short months when there's a blackout and point the finger at South Australia is an absolute disgrace, is an outrage. And that was South Australian Premier um, Jay Weatherall and Federal Energy Minister Josh Frydenberg with that amazing press conference from a few months ago. And this is represents live budget coverage for 2017 on Sin Nation. So we are with our panel uh, with Harish, Tim and Mitch and we're discussing more important issues that has been brought up in the budget and we're now going to talk a little bit about welfare. So in last year's budget, so this is the 2016-17 um, to 17 budget, um, it was projected that the government's expenses on social security and welfare would rise to around 37% by 2019-20. And from it, it is estimated that this financial year, the government will have spent around $158.6 billion on welfare. Do you think these expenses on welfare is justified? Tim, I'm going to ask you first. <laughs> it's a lot of money. Is, that, is, it, is it good? Is it, is it going to the right place? <laughs> the, wel the welfare... Uh, it's a bit... <laughs> It is a funny one, um, and if I'm perfectly honest with you, I've, I've heard some incredibly passionate debates from people today. When you're in student politics like me, you hear some pretty amazing debates uh, from people who have no real-world knowledge of an issue, and you watch two hacks go at each other at uh, lightning speed. Don't at me like this, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I'm seriously talking about my friends here. What was interesting today was I, I got to hear from and, and observe and, and listen to a whole bunch of people who have really real-world experience in this stuff, people who, for a whole number of reasons, um, fortunate and unfortunate, are on, on welfare and stuff. And hearing their experience, you know, it, it goes about this the completely the wrong way the wrong way I, I feel I, I honestly I, I think the Liberals are trying to do the right thing here I, I feel like I come across often as, as being you know that there's something sinister is going on I, I know that this comes from the right place I, I worry though um, uh, particularly if we're going to talk about um, changes to, like to, to the to the cards about you know not being able to um, being, being drug tested simply you know for, for young people I said before this is a government that seemingly hates young people. Whether that is true or not, this isn't the right look for a government that doesn't want to have that reputation. Um, it, it gets off to the complete wrong foot with people. Um, to, to, and to, to almost just assume that, that a person who is on welfare is the kind of person who is going to be doing this sort of thing, it, it gets to the wrong place. Um, uh, I might leave it there. I don't. Uh, it's it's a it's a very it's an emotional topic for me, but I'll I'll, I'll leave it there. Harish, do you have anything to respond? 
on this issue? Uh, regarding regarding welfare as a whole, yeah, I, I think it's expensive. band-aid yeah. solutions from the government again. I think we really do need a restructuring of the welfare program. Centrelink is really at a crisis point at the moment, and we need some. Uh, but there's much needed reform uh, that n- needs to occur in the welfare um, area of spending. It is by proportion the highest amount that we spend in regards to to government spending um, each year in the budget. Um, my opinion on welfare is that the way I look at it is the people who need it the most should be prioritised. So only if you cannot possibly work, so only if you're chronically ill, disabled, you just can't possibly work, should you receive welfare. And if we look at it in that spectrum, I think we can get some reform done. I just don't know where the debate is at the moment. I think uh, a lot of welfare, um, obviously pensioners need welfare as well, so they obviously can't work. But a lot of welfare goes to um, young people who just don't need it. A lot of welfare goes to people who are employed, that I see. Um, A lot of people um, just rot the system when they don't actually need welfare um, money from the government. And I think that the government really needs to take a harsh stance. Again, it's unpopular. Again, it's hard to reform. Again, it's hard to um, get the not not only the parliament on side, but the people on side regarding this particular issue because everyone wants welfare. Everyone wants government handouts. But I think the government really needs to take a hard stance on it, like Tony Abbott did in 2014, and really go after a restructuring, a reforming of the welfare system because it's a tough decision. It's an unpopular decision, but I think it's the right decision going forward. Um, regarding government spending and regarding um, the welfare budget and the sustainability of the welfare budget in the future. And that is, it has to be something for people who just can't possibly work, not for people who can work and who are able to work. Yeah, I'll, I'll, try, I'll try and be quick, but I think there's some really interesting comparative economics that you can do in regards to welfare states. So if you look at the most successful welfare states where there's a, a quite a generous package for um, disadvantaged people, it tends to be coupled with an incredibly free market, free labour force environment. So if you look at nations such as Sweden and Denmark, which are raved about for being um, apparently socialist countries, nothing could be further from the truth. They have high welfare states, high income transfer system, but easiest place in the world to set up a business, least regulations, unbelievable low corporate tax rates, and they've managed to sustain a quite affordable, um, generous welfare state. And that's also the case for Finland. It's also the case for Denmark. Um, Whereas if you look at countries where you've coupled a a strong welfare state with tight labour market regulations, high um, high corporate tax rates, such as France, um, you've seen some really tough economic outcomes. They're, they're really struggling with debt issues. They're really sh- having sluggish economic growth, g- particularly when they're looking right over the fence next door with Germany, these other Scandinavian nations who are doing exceptionally well. Um, I think, basically, if you're going to have a welfare state, you're always going to have to suffer the consequences of higher unemployment. That's just inevitable. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not worthwhile. Um, and you have to, I think and the, the most efficient way to go forward, I think, is Australia to have to provide... But this is just my opinion... But a compassionate welfare, nate, uh, welfare state is only sustainable as long as you embrace free markets in other areas and just follow the Swedish and Scandinavian model. Yeah. So there's been a lot of controversy surrounding Work for the Doll and PATH programs. Um, this also particularly comes after the death of Josh Park Fing last year at a Work for the Doll site and allegations that the PATH program is exploitative as it can pay as little as $4 per hour. Do you think that these programs work or should the government be looking into creating fair entry-level job opportunities for young people who, you know, by obviously, you know, doing things like PATH or Work for the Doll, you know, are willing to work, would want to work, but might 
be having troubles, you know, getting into the job market. I'm going to start with Parish on this one. Yes, of course, I think um, the government can provide incentives for um, young people to work and get back into the workforce if they've left the workforce or entered the workforce for the first time. But I think there's a difference between providing incentives, job incentives, um, you know, training. You know, we have a great tertiary education system, as we were talking about before, and just handing out money, handing out money to young people who can work. Because I think you disincentivise um, working and you disincentivise employment when there are young people who think they can just have a casual job for, what, 15 hours a week and they can get the rest of their income, so 50% of their income or whatever, whatever part of their income from the government. And I just think that's the wrong way to go about it. I think we need to incentivise employment, skills, training, instead of just handing out money and allowing people to walk the system. Because at the end of the day, the government has limited funds, okay? We all want to help everyone. We want to help, as we were talking about foreign aid, we are talking about homelessness, there's so many issues that the government needs to fund and we need to talk about and we need to put money in. But the fact of the matter is, the reality is that we can't put money into everything. We'd go broke. We'd, we'd have a deficit as far as the eye can see, debt as, uh, as far as the eye can see. And that's where we're heading to at the moment if we don't arrest the debt. So what we need to do is prioritise the funding that we do have and that we can play with. So we have about $160 billion that we put towards social security and social services. Um, maybe we need to reduce that and restructure it and put more of the money into areas where people can't possibly work, as I was saying before, so disabled people, chronically ill people, um, pension system. Um, restructure it. And regarding young people, maybe we could put that money in, maybe not into like New Start or allowance programs, or may, but maybe we could restructure that um, funding, um, sorry, uh, put that funding into other areas like employment, skills, training, um, and those sort of mechanisms, those sort of processes which will... Um, put people back into work instead of allowing them to feed off the welfare system for years to come, because that's a bad thing, not just for the young people, but for the government and the welfare program and um, the taxpayer purse. Any responses, either or? Do work for the dole programs work? No. And if they did work, the Liberal governments probably wouldn't announce one every single budget. Um, like... I, I don't think we actually had a new one this year. So I will. I, I always say, I'll put my hand up when I'm wrong. I said last year's show, we'll have a new one next year. Apparently not. Um, look, no, no one seriously thinks that $4 an hour job programs are going to actually incentivize young people. Oh, let's sign up for this program and get paid $4 an hour. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a lunacy. I think um, just uh, really quickly, I think government work um, work programs and those kind of things will not work then because governments are very bad at designing these things. And this is, it's strange, I'm coming from a libertarian right-wing <laughs> perspective really, but the reality is governments are rubbish at running these programs. The best thing to do is get out of interfering with the labour market, allow the free market to take place in labour, abolish the minimum wage and couple it with Ooh. a generous welfare state as is done in Sweden, as is done in Denmark. Ooh. And and it's quite a sustainable system Ab- where essentially... Abolish the minimum wage. Uh, yeah, well, in many successful countries, such as Sweden, they don't have an actual legislative minimum wage. Rather, it's negotiated with unions and employers. Ah, it's um, negotiated with unions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, unions oh, can be quite a, quite a good thing in relation to big businesses. What However, do you know? with small businesses, I will I will correct. Oh, before before my labour friend gets too excited, <laughs> I will jump in and say that small businesses in these countries have much more flexibility in setting their own minimum wages. And I do think 
um, basically, if we look at youth unemployment around the world, I think there's no uh, no accident that the high correlation of high youth unemployment is with a minimum wage state. Uh, before we want run out of time, I wanted to talk about the four-year freeze on Medicare rebates, and that has been lifted or proposed to be lifted in this budget. Was that necessary? I, I think it's a wonderful thing. I think GPs are treated like rubbish by this country. They're the most important form of Medicare, Medicare medical service. Um, GP statistically and preventative medicine generally has been constantly shown to be the most efficient way of reducing healthcare costs while improving outcomes. And except no government has done that. Instead, they've invested in specialists and hospitals and allowed the College of Surgeons to run riot. Um, if we want to talk about uni bad unions, the College of Surgeons is the yeah. worst. Yeah. Like that's that's it's. And I'm amazed that no one talks about that. Mm. Um, there's this union by another name. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, it's it's a union. To, you call it monopoly, whatever you want to call it, whatever label you want to use. It's a, it's a terrible thing which pushes up surgeon costs and massively distorts our pricing system. Surgeons, very very talented medical professionals in this country, wait in lines because they're told by the College of Surgeons there's insufficient demand, and it's absolute rubbish. Gast you don't become a gastrologist in this country till you're in your mid-30s, and that's because you've done two PhDs, you've applied for the exam about seven times, failed six of them. Mm. It's rubbish. It's absolute. It's not very good, and it interferes with the price system. And GPs, in the meantime, the most valuable contributors to the health system, are treated like rubbish by the government, and they're not treated in the same way. They don't have a union backing them up, and so, um, and so they're not. We don't have a G as many GPs as we should. I think the rebate's a great thing. Yeah, well, the freeze ha should have been lifted four years ago. Um, every sensible person who was, was looking at this realised that. Um, but, you know, that said, it, it's, it's good that it is finally happening. The, the freeze has to be lifted. Um, GPs are in an awful situation right now with, with bulk billing and um, having to turn people away um, because, you know, they've had to stop accepting bulk billing payments. Um, so it's good. It, it's a good thing. Uh, but... Let's hope it, it happens. Um, hopefully there's not too many sort of silly games played with, with getting it through and amendments and that kind of stuff. Harish? Yeah, I think the, the, the reversing the freezes, it's a good thing as well. I'll have to concede on, on that point. Um, I think um, uh, the Turnbull government has made the right decision here. But again, the issue comes back to Medicare is very important and we need to fund Medicare. And it's probably one of the most important social service programs that we have currently. But the issue is funding it. And we've got, uh, it costs about $20 billion and we get $10 billion from the levy. So it's a $10 billion deficit every single year. And this is a problem. It's very hard to keep up with sustainability in the, in the Medicare budget and the health budget. And we need to find a way to address that, those concerns. And I, I think maybe a better way could be uh, proposed as opposed to freezing the rebate. Um, but this is an issue for not just this government, for future governments and Labor governments in particular in the future. Um, I don't know how they're going to resolve this issue, but someone's going to do something about this because Medicare is a great system. We have to preserve the integrity of Medicare, but we have to find out how to fund it into the future sustainably. And that's going to be a very, very big test for future governments. And um, I don't have the idea, I don't have the solution, but uh, I hope future governments do find a solution to we have one final question, and it is about corporate tax cuts. We have seen the recent $20 billion corporate tax deal pass the Senate, which wasn't passed without a fight, we must say, but was it 
was it justified as allowing um, Australia greater freedom to be competitive on corporate tax? Why has cutting company tax has been a major issue for coalition? Uh, we'll go with Harish with this first one. Yeah, so as I said, I was, a, I was a big supporter of this, and this is in the budget as well with the corporate tax cuts. It wasn't spoken about much because it has been spoken about for a bit over the past couple of months. I think it's great. Um, the, the corporate tax uh, in this country is far too high. We talk about multinationals not paying their fair share. Well, I can tell you why they're not paying their fair share, because you've got countries like Ireland with, what, um, 12%, 11% tax rate, Singapore has got... 15%. The UK even has a 20% corporate tax rate. And we, on the other hand, have about a 30% corporate tax rate. So reducing this um, corporate tax, uh, tax rate into the future is good because it's going to make us more competitive. More people want to invest in this country. They want to invest in business, our economy. And multinationals won't be forced to pay tax somewhere else um, because we have a lower tax rate. And um, more business will come into this country and they will pay the taxes here fairly. So I think it's great that um, we're prioritising this. Again, an unpopular issue, something that might not get through the Senate. But the government is trying, the government is working to achieve these measures, pass them through the Senate. Uh, and um, I think it's very good for this country. It's something that Paul Keating did in the 80s because he understood that this sort of economics work. He understood that these sort of policies... Um, better the economy, they grow investment in the economy, and because of those tax cuts, arguably we've had 26 years of economic growth because of those tax cuts, and because of the deregulation methods, uh, measures and the privatisation measures Paul Keating adopted in the 80s. But I find it quite surprising and hypocritical for Labor to now denounce these sort of policies when they were so vocal in their support and advocacy of these policies in the 1980s. What's changed in the last 30 years? What has changed in the last 30 years? regarding Labor's policy on corporate tax cuts. Why are they against it now? Why were they for it before? What's the difference? You know, I need an answer to this because if I don't get an answer for this, then there's no real reason to block it in the Senate. You can actually get coffee sometime. We can have a long <laughs> chat. Oh, God, People represent People have their eyes glazing up. Yeah, it's, just, it's great, isn't it? Um, no, I, I love the praise that Paul Keating's been getting from our Liberal friend here tonight. It's, it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> Um, it, they were needed at the time. Australia was too highly taxed and it was too regulated. It's, it's not needed right now at all. And the suggestion that, you know, business is going to stop doing, uh, you know, business in Australia is complete lunacy. Um, you know, sure, Ireland is, is lower taxed than Australia. Sure, Singapore is lower taxed than Australia. They can't duplicate Australia, move the landmass elsewhere. If these companies want to do business in Australia, they have to come here and do business here. Uh, and I think we, we need to uh, buck up, we need to put our suspenders on, we need to tell these people they're going to pay tax and they're going to pay a, an appropriate amount of, uh, of tax. These people rake in billions and billions of dollars of, of, uh, of revenue. I'm not talking about small business here, I'm not talking about medium-sized business. I'm talking about the big end of town that is getting away with paying next to nothing. People provide all sorts of goods and services you know, uh, in Australia and they pay next to nothing, and it's, it's a joke. Um, no, uh, no, I, uh, no, I refuse to support this, this, this notion that um, Australia is, is somehow um, uh, needs to, to, to bow down to, to the interests of uh, these people who give their uh, CEOs these huge, huge tax bonuses. 
while uh, their, their secretaries pay more in personal tax than, than these large companies making billions of dollars in revenue do. Last word to Mitch. So I'll try, I'll try and be brief, but I want to defend the corporate tax cuts. I think they are a wonderful, <laughs> a wonderful decision. I think, to be honest, I think it's the best part of the entire budget. Um, all macroeconomic growth theories, the main two being the solo model and the endogenous growth model, very fancy words, basically, that you don't need to know what they mean. They're quite boring, actually. But the reality is that both of them confirm that capital investment is central for economic growth. And the biggest source of capital investment in this country is, corp- is corporate firms. Um, and if you look around the world, the most successful economies that are com- comparable to Australia, um, Denmark's corporate tax rate is 24.5%, Norway's corporate tax rate is 27 Sweden's corporate tax rate is 22%, UK's corporate tax rate is about 22%, Finland's corporate tax rate is about 20%. In Europe, the average rate is 18.7%. In Asia, the average rate is 20.86%. Australia's is 30%. That's absurdly high. I, I, I really, truly believe that. And the final thing I'll say is an unpopular defense of big businesses. The reality is that big businesses can afford to take risks, which no other firm can. The reason we have gas exploration and oil exploration in the Bass Strait is not because of medium businesses. It's because a big business saw an opportunity to make some money. But because they saw that opportunity, we get provided with more gas. And the, the fundamental thing is that big businesses, and again, this will sound odd, but they actually often make it much more affordable for small businesses to get by because big businesses have massive bargaining power. They order huge amounts of quantities of quantities of products. And because, for instance, let's take mining, for example. A big business in mining can build a huge mine, and because they build in, on scale, they create economies of scale for their suppliers, which means their suppliers can create more goods at a cheaper cost. And that means that smaller businesses can afford to exist because they can buy the inputs at a lower cost. Take away the big business, you've only got small miners, there's not insufficient demand for the input input parts to create that supply chain. I know that might sound confusing, but the reality is that it's often the case where big businesses collapse, small businesses go with them. Well... So, that is all we have time for on this uh, Budget Night special. Um, don't forget to check out our social media accounts. Tweet to us at SinRepresent. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. Um, we'll be back this Saturday at 3 to 4 p.m. on Sin Nation with our Budget Hangover episode, as well as looking at politics from home and around the world. Um, We want to say thank you so much to our guests and everyone who's helped us out. Um, So to our panel, young Labour member um, Timothy Webber, um, young Liberal member Harish McCann, and Monash University economic student uh, Mitch Harvey. We want to thank our guests from Farago, um, Alexandra, sorry, Alexandra and Mary. Uh, thank you so much for coming over, especially because they did run all the way back from you know Melbourne Uni to here. We want to say thank you to Claudia Long um, for you know being in Canberra and speaking to us, and that was great. Um, we want to say thank you to uh, Jordan and Shannon from Panorama for their packages. It was really great. And also, she's not actually been seen in the show, but we want to say thank you to Caroline Young. Um, so sorry, Caroline Tongue rather. Um, <laughs> for um, all the help that she has provided. It's been a really difficult week for us and she is the news, the online news person at SIN and she's been really helpful um, in like, just kind of like the, the boring organisational bits. Um, thank you, Tash. <laughs> thank you, Julia. <laughs> and um, thank you to you, the listener. Um, thank you for listening to us. We'll be podcasting this show. You might be listening to the podcast right now. Yeah. So that's been represent. 
represents budget special on Simnation. Stay tuned, stay political, and join the conversation. <laughs> <Stay> <laughs> Good <political>. night. <laughs> Good night. Thank you. Thank Good you night, so much. Thank you.